if if you have a medical condition, uh, there are really two responses that you you can have, right? Leave it and hope it heals, or treat it because it will certainly worsen if you just leave it there. So you might hope that a, a small patch of of skin infection clears up, but the odds are, and they're very good, that it's just going to spread unless you do something about it. And the point is, right, that, that we may think that something seems small and so it needs no attention, but actually these same things easily grow out of control. And that point applies very clearly concerning our own sin, doesn't it? Loads of issues in our hearts, well, they seem like no big deal. We assess them and think, that's not the worst thing that could be going on with me. That's not the worst sin I've ever seen. So we just leave it. We think it's fine and that it'll just get better on its own, or at least it won't get any worse. But sin is like a rash in your heart. It doesn't get better on its own. It will just fester unless you treat it. And we'd be foolish to think that the Corinthians were any different than that. right? They, they didn't intend to create divisions in their congregation. They didn't consciously decide to be torn apart by preferences for different preachers, ruined by sexual immorality, or split by wrong worship practices. Doubtless these things began small, but just weren't ever treated. In, and in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is in the middle of working through how, how their misuse of spiritual gifts was creating divisions in the congregation by isolating believers both from God and from one another. The the Corinthians' quest for prestige them to want gifts that put them in the spotlight. Right? But that divided them as they strove against one another for prominence. And yet their use of spiritual gifts also put walls, not just between themselves, but between them and God, too. Well, how? The gift of tongues was intended to help the church reach people from other nations. Right? To to reach people that were part of a different culture during the church's fundamentally missionary phase. I mean, there was no option in in these days of the church but for the church to go somewhere besides Jerusalem and reach the ends of the earth. And the gift of tongues in that context supernaturally enabled someone to speak another human language which they had not learned for the purpose of evangelism. As the church existed only on cultural frontiers, by definition almost. But speaking in tongues was more noticeable than speaking God's truth to the church in a language that everyone in the room knows. That was then 
at least it became, too plain, too ordinary for the Corinthians. And in this situation, the desire for a claim, the desire for preferences probably began, probably began as a small itchy patch, but grew into a swollen red set of hives covering their whole selves, their whole church. What seemed like a small thing, it's okay if I just push for a little bit of attention in church. I I deserve it, after all. It's okay if I, I mind my own preferences just a little bit more than the needs of other believers. Well, that seemed like such a small thing. And by the time Paul has to write to them, it's an overwhelming condition. So our, our main point, as we think about this, this issue for ourselves, is that the proper use of our spiritual gifts is a matter of spiritual maturity. The proper use of our spiritual gifts is a matter of spiritual maturity. Now, what we're going to do tonight is think about this in two dangers and one solution. So two dangers and a solution. And the two dangers are Babylon and Babel, and then the solution is baptism. So Babylon, Babel, and baptism. Let's think first about Babylon. And I think the, the big thing we have to ask here is why does this passage about tongues and prophecy applying to believers and unbelievers, right? There's this distinction Paul is making relate to this whole discussion I've put forward about overwhelming sin. What's the connection there? And the reason is that because, because Paul connects the whole discussion to issues of spiritual maturity and that God's judgment upon sin, verse 20, right, notes the issue of spiritual maturity. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So there's a contrast, don't we see, between maturity and evil. Right? Be infants in evil, uh, but rather, on the other hand, be mature in your thinking, namely, uh, thinking about the Christian life, as Paul has been discussing it. And so, developing the right way of thinking about this problem is the root out of sinfulness. And that leads us to our first danger that the Corinthians' misuse of gifts uh, under God's judgment upon his disobedient people. Right, so in verse, in verse 21, we can, we can see where Paul is making this point. So he, he's citing Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. He drops a couple of lines, but, but we read them in context before, so we can just jump to his citation here. He writes, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, Will I speak to this people, namely his own people? And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now notice first, I think this is one of the things that we need to really mark, is notice how quickly Paul applied the Old Testament 
to New Testament Christians. After all, he told us back in in chapter 10 that these things referring to the Old Testament were written for our benefit. In Isaiah 28, God sent the Babylonians, right? Those are the, those are the peoples he's going to send as punishment upon Israel. He sent the Babylonians on Israel as invaders, as a judgment. It was the curse of exile because they had so thoroughly violated the Mosaic Covenant. The Babylonian Empire invaded Judah, taking them captive. And Isaiah is telling them that that will happen. Now, if we take a step back for a second, (laughs) in most science fiction movies, right, one of the key moments of tension in the story is when the human, you know, the person that with whom you identify as the main character, when he or she gets captured by some alien species. Right, so we can, one example, right? Star Wars, The Return of the Jedi, uh, Princess Leia encounters the Ewoks and has no way of explaining who she is or what she's doing, and yet they're all brandishing spears. This is a pretty troubling situation. A bad situation, though, is intensified as in light of the fact that she cannot even understand what her new captors are asking of her, what they're demanding her to explain, and she can't give any answer to them. And Israel faced essentially that sort of situation as Babylon invaded. They couldn't understand their attackers. Right? In Isaiah, God explained how this very confusion was not accidental, but was a further part of his judgment. He sent enemies. That's, that's what Paul is quoting. He sent enemies that they could not understand to impose their exile, to deepen the curse upon them. Not only were they taken captive, they couldn't even communicate with their captors. And now, what's going, what makes the problem in Corinth so troubling is that their use of tongues in worship Put a mark of God's judgment upon the congregation. Right? How? Because they're using a language that no one could understand. But that has been a sign of God's judgment throughout the history of his people. And the Corinthians, for some reason, think that this is a good thing. As explained in verse 22, well, tongues were meant to be assigned to unbelievers. Namely, as a tool for cross-cultural evangelism, right? To reach people who, who spoke another language besides the one that you understand. But on the other hand, prophecy was meant to be the sign for believers, namely as an address to God's people in a language that they can understand. God's blessings are meant to be understood as we considered at length last week. And so, Paul was clear that worship must be conducted in a language that, in fact, everyone understands, because that is key to building up the church. I think if we kind of pause for a second there, we can already put together some 
takeaways from that. Right? In, in passing, we might kind of further afield from things we think about from day to day. In passing, we might note how Roman Catholicism has in, insisted on conducting services in Latin, right? Which at one point was the people's common language across the empire, but not anymore. What was once a fitting language, once a fitting thing for worship, actually is now a sign of judgment. And we must ensure that we not lock, right, more personally, we, we can take away from that that we need to make sure we don't lock on to something that was once good and insist that it is now necessary for all times and places. There's a, tr- a, a difference between the tradition and traditionalism. The tradition is how God has worked providentially through his people to understand his word, to gather insights about how to help the church that are handed on from generation to generation. Traditionalism is when we insist on doing something the same way just because that's the way we do it. There's not a theological and biblical reason that's helpful. It's just we can't let it go. It becomes necessary. I mean, even in something like translating the Bible, right? The, there are countless battles over this. And it's fine to have a preference. But, but the, really the simple question is, well, which accurate, which is an important qualifier, which accurate translation best facilitates understanding? Right? Parts of our services, right? We, we have a progress uh, of the service. It begins in one place and it goes through various different things. We can adore the Lord God. We confess our sin. Right? We, we celebrate the gospel. But these things, the parts of our service, whatever they may be in different congregations, aren't supposed to be about what we like or what we're used to, but about what communicates the truth effectively. And so, speaking in tongues was a miraculous gift for missionary evangelism, communicating understanding to foreigners, but to speak in a foreign language in our worship services uh, it brings a sign of God's disapproval upon God's people. So our our first danger is that of Babylon, right? And namely in misusing gifts in such a way that bring judgment upon God's people. Misusing gifts in such a way that brings judgment upon God's people. And that brings us to our second danger, Babel. Babel. And so, if we've seen how the misuse of gifts put a mark of, of God's disapproval on the church, now what, we, what we're going to do here is just extend that point to show how a lack of spiritual maturity divides God's people. And this is not that different in some ways than what we considered this morning. Isn't it, isn't it striking that God places such an importance on words throughout the scripture? 
God spoke the universe into existence. God made us to communicate with him and with each other, not through pictures, not just through pictures, not through telepathic thoughts, but in words. God recorded forever and infallibly what his people need to know about him and what he's done for us, not in a code, not in a crop circle, not in something cryptic, words on a page. God intends words so that we know and understand him. We've already seen a problem of the communication between us and God. This use of gifts became a judgment rather than a blessing. But the Bible recounts a problem about communication just between us as well. Now Genesis 11 gives us the account of the Tower of Babel. And because the, because the people were building for their own glory, right, God judged them. Now, it was very clear in, in that story, even as, as we read it, that they had gifts, right? especially for how to make good bricks and how to turn them into good buildings. Right? But, but their misuse of this gift for their glory rather than to benefit others by making God known resulted in judgment. But what was the judgment? He confused their language. They could communicate with each other. They all spoke the same language. And then they couldn't. They couldn't understand each other anymore. And so then, in light of that, they scattered from each other. A lack of understanding each other put divisions between them and they dispersed. Because understanding each other ceased, they divided. The origin of being unable to understand one another or to communicate across cultural things is in humanity's sinful desire for personal glory over God's. And the Corinthian use of tongues, it extended Babel's curse into the church itself. God had appointed... God had appointed the church as the outpost of grace. But the Corinthians wanted attention and prestige, letting sin fester into some malignant infection that they turned the church into a place of God's judgment, preventing even Christians from understanding the word of God. Strikingly, can't we remember back, if we, we read this a few weeks ago in Acts 2, when the Spirit came at Pentecost... When the Spirit descended at Pentecost, what happened? Well, the Spirit reversed Babel, didn't he? Where God had come in judgment and confused the languages so that people could not understand one another and they dispersed. God had divided the people at Babel by confusing the way they speak. By the Spirit, God used the gospel to overcome these divisions and bring people from every language back together in the Lord Jesus, they could understand each other again. They could understand what was being said. 
And they could understand that God was speaking to them not in judgment, or but in blessing through the Lord Jesus Christ. The gift of tongues is for the purpose, was for the purpose of overcoming Babel's curse. Not for furthering it, like the Corinthians were doing. And so, Paul explained in verses 23 to 25, that the church is supposed to come together and be understood. It's significant that that he underlined the action of, of coming together, I think. The, the, it's there, but the ESV actually omits an extra phrase from the Greek. It, in the Greek it says, come together in the same place. Unity. Not, not just sort of generic, vague, I, I have a sense of unity. Unity, be in the room together, is in focus. But people, but people can't come to repentance, as Paul points out. Come, can't come to repentance and, and be reconciled to God if they don't understand you. If they don't understand the service. Right? If, if that's going on, if they, not, not just conceptually, but if you're saying things that, that doesn't even sound like a human person speaking, they're going to simply think that Christians are insane, out of their minds. Now, right, we all admit, we have to admit, right, spiritually blind people are, are often put off by the content of the Christian faith. That's just how it is. The Bible promises us that. That spiritually blind people will be put off and despise the content of our faith. But the Corinthians put unbelievers off by their conduct. Not, not by the things that they were explaining, but by the things they were doing. God's truth, God's truth was not the issue. Since they weren't even communicating it, understandably. But the people's behavior... I think that gives us a pretty open door to connect that to our own lives, doesn't it? As we, as we try to share the gospel, as we try to grow together in the church, as we meet in the same place, we have to remember that our conduct is important, just like the content. I mean, that hardly ever are people successfully bullied into the kingdom or into agreeing with us. Hardly ever does arrogance persuade as well as kindness, right? We have to be winsome in how we treat people as well as in the ways that we teach people. There's an importance on how we treat them and teach them. To treat each other poorly, usually because we are more concerned about ourselves, whether because we insist on our own preferences, assert our desire for attention, or prioritize being right in a discussion over having a meaningful interaction that helps someone towards the truth. Well, to, to treat people poorly in these ways inevitably creates divisions between people. And so our, our second danger here is that of Babel, furthering divisions 
among ourselves. So we've seen the misuse of gifts that brings God's disapproval, and we've seen a misuse of gifts that furthers divisions among ourselves. And now we want to end on a more positive note. Our final point is baptism. Right? The two dangers both highlighting a misuse of gifts, creating divisions, whether that be divisions between us and God or us and others, right? By both essentially bring our focus upon getting our own glory in some way rather than God's glory or, or our neighbor's good. But now yet we still do need a solution. And throughout chapter 14, if we kind of just take, take a step back and, and think about what's been going on here. Paul has worked to rewire the Corinthians' thinking about the purpose of their gifts. The solution to these dangers is to consider how God gifts his people for his glory and others' benefits. And I think actually one of the things going on here, a key factor in this whole issue, is that using our gifts for God's glory, and particularly for the sake of others rather than ourselves, actually is a significant act of trust. We focus on ourselves because we do not trust that we will have what we need unless we provide it for ourselves. We struggle to believe that God will meet our needs through other people. Right? We think that we need to use our gifts for ourselves, for our own contentment and fulfillment, because no one else will think and act for our good. And when the whole church thinks that way, indeed, it becomes true. So focusing our efforts on using our giftings for God's glory and for others' benefit requires that we trust God to meet our needs and give us what is good for us. And yet... (laughs) That is actually an inherent purpose built into the church, isn't it? This very thing, that through each other, God will give us what is good for us. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Right, This one baptism marking those who are of the one faith ties us all to the one risen Christ 
but also ties us all into Christ's one body. Doesn't it? As we saw even back in 1 Corinthians 12, being one body as the church means working together. Not using our gifts individualistically, but using them to contribute to the whole church. And so, like an implication of the fact that you are baptized is that your gifts are not for your good, but for the benefit of others. So spiritually mature people focus their gifts on others because they know that trusting God's vision for them through others, well, it underlines the gospel's fundamental premise. Do we not receive everything from outside ourselves? We, we opened with Romans 11.35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The gospel's first premise is about what comes to us from outside ourselves. Namely, righteous from Christ and the Spirit given to us to indwell us. By faith, we take hold of Christ who stands in heaven. He's elsewhere. Right? We take hold of Him and yet we receive Him. And as we receive Him from outside ourselves into ourselves, He is our salvation. By faith, Christ's perfect righteousness comes from outside us, but is given to us to make us righteous in God's sight, to put us in a good relationship with our Maker. By faith, the Spirit comes from outside us as the, the redemptive historical gift, reward of the, of, to the Son comes from outside us to indwell our hearts. And so we see then that the gospel trains us to trust that God provides for us from outside ourselves. Through reflection on the gospel, we become spiritually mature people as we learn to direct our gifts for the sake of others. We do not store up for ourselves because by pouring out to others, we demonstrate our trust that God will give to us through someone else. And he has fundamentally earned our trust to that end in the Lord Jesus Christ. Has he not? If God can give us everything we need in Jesus well, then he can certainly provide for us through the church. And with that, let's close in prayer. Father God, we are thankful that as we consider your word, that we know that you are the God who meets people's needs. You are the God who does not leave us to our own devices, but gives to your people that you might protect them, that you might mature them. 
And so we ask here and now that you would work in us, that we would leave here more mature than when we came, but certainly that over the days, weeks, months, years and decades before us, that you would continually be at work to mature us in the faith. Help us to think about our gifts not as something to draw attention to ourselves, not as a line item to our own prestige or credit, but as tools for helping the other people of God. Help us in this way, we do ask, because it helps us see what Christ has done for us. And we ask it in his name. Amen.